This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Good morning to you all. My name is Josh, and I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to be able to open up God's Word with you this morning. And in fact, um, you're going to want to have your Bibles open, I think, uh, today as we're going to talk about Acts chapter 10. We just have a portion of it printed for you in your bulletin. Gabo and Kelly read even a smaller portion for us in Spanish. But really, I'm going to talk about the whole thing. Uh, it's 48 verses, so we're, we're not going to hit it all uh, in, in the same way, but I am going to talk about the whole thing. So page 918, I believe it begins on, if you're using one of the Bibles in your rows. Of course, from your own Bibles, you have to figure out your own page numbers there. But Acts chapter 10. But before we get into it, and maybe while you're flipping there, Let's do a little experiment together, all right? This is a, uh, a futurist experiment, and I'm borrowing this from a, a pastor friend, but, but you, you, do you know what a futurist is? A futurist is somebody who labors to understand past cultural trends and current cultural arrangements, all with the hopes of then predicting future cultural probability. So they take what they know of past cultural trends, Uh, present sort of cultural arrangements, and then with the hopes of predicting future cultural probabilities, right? And then futurists then are hired uh, by companies and governments so that they can advise on uh, things to invest in or things to prepare for and so on. Well, you're going to be futurists here for the sake of this exercise, and uh, what I want you to do is I want you to think about what you know of the past, what you know of the present, and then I want you to tell me what you think is most likely to happen in the future. And we're going to do this by show of hands, okay? So which of the following is, I'm going to give you a few couplets, it'll be an either-or kind of thing, which of the following do you think is most likely to happen in the future, all right? So number one, which is most likely? That we find an effective cure for most forms of cancer, or that we heal the violence and animus between Israel and Palestine, all right? So show of hands, uh, cancer, healing most kinds of cancer, all right? Uh, And then show of hands, Israel and Palestine, all right, cancer, I was going to say cancer wins, but that's not the right uh, uh, sentiment there, but uh, number two, uh, which is more likely, that we will have a broadly available biomedical technology that changes the way blind people see the world, or that we'll have a broadly embraced moral vision that changes the way human beings see their enemies, all right, which is more likely, Uh, biomedical technology that changes the way blind people see the world, all right, show of hands, Uh, the way broadly embraced human uh, moral vision so that humans see their enemies, all right, Uh, overwhelmingly, uh, uh, biomedical technology on that one. All right, number three, which is more likely that the American government reconciles its budget and reduces its debt, or that American culture experiences deep and widespread racial reconciliation. All right, so first, who says uh, that we'll reconcile our debt? Few. This one was really close in the first service. Uh, wide and deep racial reconciliation. Okay, more so on that one. All right, fourth question, last one. Which is more likely, that we will send a lone female astronaut through the darkness of space to land on Mars, or we will create cities where a lone female can walk at night and be assured that she'll return home safely. All right, lone female astronaut to Mars, okay, 
city safe for women to walk at night. A few there, so mostly Mars. All right, so what's the point of this exercise? Merely to show that in almost everybody's estimation, one of the biggest, if not the biggest challenge that exists before us is to figure out how to do life together, how to face the differences that exist among us. Some people call this the problem of pluralism. Others call it the challenge of difference. Still others call it the obstacles to community. And it's not just society-wide or worldwide that these questions are grappled with. We have to deal with these challenges in the life of the church as well, especially as the church desires to live out its calling to see people from every tribe and tongue and nation know and experience new life in Jesus Christ and therefore be included into the body of Christ, to the church. And how then does the church discover, how did it discover in history, that this is what we ought to be striving for? Well, this episode that we're going to look at in Acts chapter 10 is maybe the key moment or one of at least the key moments that shows the church what she ought to be struggling for, what she ought to become. It's the story of Peter and Cornelius. And John Stott, in his commentary on Acts, says there's actually two conversions in this story. Cornelius converts to faith in Jesus Christ, but also Peter has a conversion of sorts, a conversion in his understanding of what the church would be like or should look like. So let's take a look at these two conversions uh, this morning. First, let's talk about Cornelius, all right? Um, Back at chapter 10, verse 1, it says this. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Now, Caesarea was a coastal city, Uh, the seat of the Roman government of Judea. Cornelius, it says, was a centurion. Centurions were high-ranking soldiers in the Roman uh, military. He would have commanded 100 men. He was part of the Italian cohort. Cohorts were 600 men, and so he would have been one of the six ranking officials, right? Six of them, each with a command of 100. Let's go on and see what we learn about Cornelius, though. It says in verse 2, he was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. Now, here we get a picture of his character, right? He's clearly a good guy. Luke says he's devout. And then he sort of expands upon that. Well, what does it mean that he's devout? Well, he feared God. He had awareness of God, a humility in his life before God. He goes on to say he prayed continually. He gave generously. So you might say he had a rich, deep inner life. A life of prayer, communion with the Lord, but he also had a rich, deep uh, public life in his engagement with others. He gave alms generously. Alms were were traditionally uh, gifts to the poor. Verse 22 tells us that he was well thought of by everyone. So in an industry uh, not known for integrity, he had a sterling reputation. He was a good guy, and and, and God recognizes him as such. Verse 4, it says, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. So Cornelius is a good guy. He's the kind of guy you absolutely would want to to, to work with or to live beside, you know. Fathers, this is the kind of guy you want to ask your daughter out on a date, you know. If, If you have to have troops in your neighborhood, well, then he's the one that you would want commanding them. But even so, we learn that Cornelius needs Jesus. In verse 3, 
He gets a visit from an angel of the Lord. And what would you expect God to say to somebody like that? We just read all this glowing uh, description of his character. You might expect that God would come to somebody like Cornelius and say, keep it up, Cornelius. Right? Just stay the course. You're doing just fine. You're on your way. Or maybe he would say, uh, good, but not great. You can tweak a few things here and there. You just need a little bit more in your life to top it off. But that's not what happens, is it? God says, Cornelius, I've heard your prayers. I see that you're devout. You still need Jesus. Go, send for Peter. He's going to come and he's going to tell you the gospel. Now, a couple conclusions that we can draw from this. Number one, Christians should affirm the good things we see in the people around us, wherever we see them. Theologians call this common grace. That is, that understanding that God can give insight and wisdom and talent to people, whether or not they're in the church, whether or not they know Jesus, we should not hesitate, Christians, to admit that. We should not hesitate to admit that some of our neighbors are, are better parents than we are, are, are harder working than we are, are more talented than we are, are more invested in the neighborhood, frankly, than we are. We should not be shy to admit that. We should show great respect when we see good things, no matter where we see it. That said, though, if Cornelius needed Jesus, then we all do. One theologian put it this way. He says, Cornelius was nice, but he was not new. He was nice, but he was not new. Jesus Christ has come into the world to make us new. And despite all those good things, verse 43 makes it clear that Cornelius, along with the rest of us, is in need of the forgiveness of sins. And in fact, Nice people, moral people, I can say this uh, from my own interactions and conversations with people. Very often it's moral people, nice people that sometimes struggle the most with this notion that we need to be forgiven. Because a lot of the time we can convince ourselves that our niceness, our morality uh, makes us uh, okay, makes us acceptable. We're not really in need, we might think. And maybe for some of us this morning, this is the jarring thing about this passage, about this story. Cornelius has a rich inner life, a generous public life. He's well-respected, he's well-liked, and he's still absolutely in need of God's grace and forgiveness. Uh, Henry Nouwen was a uh, Harvard uh, professor. He was a Catholic priest and also a uh, caregiver for adults with special needs. And in many ways, Henry Nouwen was uh, a Cornelius type person. Uh, but listen to how he described coming to grips with his own uh, need for the forgiveness of sins, the grace of God. He wrote this. He said, my self-righteousness has attached itself to the underside of my virtue. At the very moment I want to speak or act out of my most generous self, I get caught up in anger and resentment. Just as I want to be most selfless, I find myself being obsessed with being loved and recognized. Just when I do my utmost to accomplish a task well, I find myself questioning why others do not give themselves as I do to the work. It seems that wherever my virtuous self is, there is also a resentful complainer. May that sound familiar? He goes on, he says, here I am faced with my own true poverty. I am totally unable to root out my resentments. They are so deeply anchored in the soil of my inner self that pulling them out seems like self-destruction. It is clear that alone, by myself, I cannot save myself. 
Confronted here with the impossibility of self-redemption, I now understand Jesus' words to Nicodemus. Do not be surprised when I say you must be born again or born from above. Cornelius was nice, but he needed to be new. He needed Jesus. And finally, the last thing I'll mention here before we move on is just note God's pursuit of Cornelius. And I bring this up because there are so many stories like this in the Bible that, that it's a theme that uh, goes across the Testaments, across all the books of the Bible. Wherever it seems like someone is diligently searching for God, we find out as the story goes that it's God who's really searching for them. The Apostle John puts it this way. He says, we love because he first loved us. One of the most fascinating stories I heard recently about this kind of thing, about God's pursuit of someone is about the conversion of Dorothy Day. Some of you know her name. She was a social activist, a key leader for the Catholic Workers Movement. Before that, she moved to New York and was writing for a socialist magazine. She was an agnostic. She uh, maybe an atheist. She, she believed that religion was an opiate for the masses. During that time, living in New York, she got to be friends with Eugene O'Neill. Eugene O'Neill was a great American playwright, And she tells the story of an evening where she's out in a bar with some friends, Eugene O'Neill among them. It was a bar ironically called the Hell Hole. So here she is in the Hell Hole. After too many drinks, uh, O'Neill stands up on the bar and begins to recite a poem. And here's how one of her biographers describes the scene. In that setting, in a bar on 6th Avenue, O'Neill brought her to a consciousness of God. He started reciting a poem called The Hound of Heaven by Francis Thompson. O'Neill knew it by heart, all 182 lines of it. And then it quotes some from the poem. I fled God down the night and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of my tears, I hid from him. It was as though, this is the biographer again, it was though the poem were speaking directly to her. God snaps at the heels of the would-be believer who will be able to outrun the hound of heaven only so long. Dorothy Day later on explained, it was one of those poems that awakened the soul and recalled me to the fact that God is my ultimate destiny. God's pursuit of Cornelius in this story, and really it's, it's the story of the whole Bible, God's pursuit of his people. All right, so first we we learned about Cornelius, but let's talk about Peter a little bit here in this story as well. Peter, if you remember, is one of Jesus' 12 uh, disciples, right? One of the closest uh, disciples. In fact, he's actually even among um, this littler group of three that spent extra time, more intimate time with Jesus. And even more than that, uh, Peter seems to be the leader of the bunch. He's always the one to speak up first and lead loudly, and sometimes he speaks up wisely, sometimes not so wisely, but he, he, the others seem to take their cues from him. And verse 9 tells us that the day after Cornelius has this encounter with the angel of the Lord, Peter himself has a vision. Now, the backdrop to all this is that the early church, in those first days after Jesus' resurrection, and, and, and then he meets with them, and then his ascension, up to that point, um, they had mainly been reaching out to people of Jewish uh, descent, people with the message of Jesus uh, from Israel. But then you get to Acts chapter 8, which is what we read last week, and we see Philip preaching the gospel in a Samaritan town, and then to an Ethiopian man. The gospel's beginning to go outside of traditional boundaries of Israel. Then in chapter 9, 
a Jewish religious leader named Saul, who later becomes Paul, is converted to faith in Jesus Christ. And then the Lord says, he says, he's going to be my apostle to the Gentiles. And that's kind of a, a mind blower because people don't have a category for that. Apostle to the Gentiles. All that, though, is, is building steam for what we're going to have here in Acts chapter 10. And if you're reading this for the first time, you might wonder why it takes such extraordinary events to get the church to move out into the Gentile world. Well, we have to take into account the tremendous animus that existed between Jews and Gentiles in the first century. Remember the Romans, the Gentiles, the Gentile world power, they were the occupying force. The Jews were a conquered people. And in some sense, Cornelius then is not just a Gentile, he's the Gentile. You know, he's an officer in the conquering army. He lives in a city named after the Gentile ruler, Caesarea, after Caesar, right? Meanwhile, Peter is an observant Jewish man. He follows Jewish dietary laws and other ceremonial rules that mark him off as a part of this unique people of God. Peter's identity at least partly is defined by not being a Gentile. And in fact, that's how Jews tended to see the world. There were Jews, right? Descendants of Abraham, part of the chosen people of God, and then everybody else, the Gentiles, the nations. And so then it's very, very difficult for someone like Peter to imagine how the Gentiles, even if it's a nice idea, how could they possibly be incorporated into the life of the church? But in Acts chapter 10, God sends a series of disruptions in order for him to see the possibility of a truly multiracial, multicultural, multiethnic church body. Now, what are those disruptions here? The first is the vision. Verse 9, following Jewish practices of piety, Peter goes up to the housetop to pray at noon. Now, verse 10 is, at least for me, one of the easiest verses in all the Bible to identify with. Peter's trying to pray, and he gets hungry. Does that sound familiar to any of you? I think there's a Snickers commercial in here somewhere, but uh, Peter's hungry. Somebody's cooking downstairs. While all this is going on, verse 11, he falls into a kind of trance. He gets a vision, and he sees in this vision a sheet with all kinds of animals on it. This is perplexing to Peter because he knows Leviticus chapter 11, which has all these laws which uh, designate which animals are clean and therefore safe to eat, which animals are unclean, which should be avoided. And here this big picnic blanket from heaven is coming down and it's got a mix of all the different kinds of animals, clean and unclean. And then it gets more perplexing for him because then God speaks to Peter saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. This is really disturbing for him. He says, by no means, Lord. Which, by the way, just a little bit of advice, if God ever speaks to you, by no means, Lord, is not the right response. <laughs> but that's what he says, right? And three times this engagement happens. It's so hard for him to wrestle with. Verse 15, though, finally God says, what God has made clean, do not call common. The purity codes and the clean laws effectively kept Jews separated from Gentiles. You couldn't eat together. You couldn't even go in the same house. So how in the world could you be a part of the same church? The separation is so entrenched that the vision alone is not enough for Peter. Verse 17, he was still inwardly perplexed as to what the vision might mean. So then we get a second disruption, and that's this command from the Holy Spirit. Behold, verse 17, a knock at the door. Cornelius' men, who he sent out for Peter uh, because the angel of the Lord told him to, 
They show up at Peter's door and the Holy Spirit says to Peter, verse 20, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And in Greek, the word without hesitation or the phrase without hesitation, the word, uh, it's the phrase median diakrenomenos, uh, which is often translated without hesitation, but it also can be translated without discrimination, which makes a lot of sense here in the context of this story. And of course, those things are not entirely unrelated, are they? We often hesitate because we discriminate. And God says, go with these guys without hesitation, without discrimination. And then the third disruption. Peter hears Cornelius' story. He hears it from the messengers that are sent to him here. And uh, later, he hears it from Cornelius himself about the visit of the angel of the Lord. And at this point, Peter says, okay, now I get it. Or at least I get that God is up to something here. And so he goes to leave Joppa and to head to Caesarea to go to Cornelius' house. Now, it's interesting to note, though, where all this is happening for Peter. Peter is staying in a place called Joppa, which may not mean a lot to you, but Joppa is a coastal town about 30 miles south of Caesarea. But here's the thing I want you just to note, just to sort of tuck away for a moment. Joppa is the place that centuries before Jonah boarded a ship to try to escape God's call to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And here you have, again, at Joppa, God's call coming back again to tell Peter to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Well, Peter gets to Cornelius' home, verse 24. We see Cornelius is a gatherer, right? He's gotten relatives and friends all together to hear this preacher. And in verse 28 and 29, Peter explains how in the world he even came to be there. He says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to be in the house of a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And this is what I mean to say, this is a conversion for Peter. Do you hear his language? He says, I used to, I used to do this. I used to believe this. I used to act like this, but now God has shown me. And in verse 34, as he begins the sermon, he, he, he talks the same way. He says, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand. Some translations actually say, now I realize. God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. God's attitude to people is not determined by any external criteria, such as appearance, race, language, nationality, or class. God shows no favoritism. And then, even before Peter's sermon is done, the fourth disruption, in this case it might be a confirmation, the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles and they begin to speak in tongues. It's evidence the Spirit's presence. Now, in the rest of the book of Acts, we see that not everyone who receives the Holy Spirit receives the gift of tongues, but here it's very important that they do. Because God knows, and Peter anticipates in the next chapter as well, the question is going to be for the first Jewish believers is how much do we really have to let the Gentiles in? Yes, they confess faith in Jesus Christ, but are they really a full part of the church? And so what happens here is that God gives the Gentiles the same experience that the first Jewish believers got in Jerusalem on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 10, then, is sometimes called the Gentile Pentecost. And I'll just say one other thing here by application, and then we've got to move on. The Bible just assumes 
that we need each other. That it can't just be, it's just me and Jesus, or it's just you and Jesus. Notice in this story, Cornelius needed Peter. I mean, sure, he was interacting with the angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord, you know, didn't give him everything he needed. He, he sends Peter, right? Cornelius needed Peter. God sends Peter to explain to him the gospel, to receive him into the church. But also, listen, uh, Peter needed Cornelius. It's through the experience that he has here that Peter's sense of the global, multi-ethnic, multicultural mission of God begins to make sense. We need each other. God will teach us through his word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and very, very, very often through one another. And so this is just a little plug to, to get in a group of some kind, a men's group, women's group. God works in our lives through each other, and we're going to be banging the drum during the summer to get ready to relaunch community groups in the fall. Well, one last thing I want to point to in this passage, and that's Peter's sermon, starting in verse 34, really down to verse 43. And it's important that we look at this because the content of Peter's sermon, what he actually preaches about, actually relates to both of these conversions. Because the content of Peter's sermon is exactly what this good guy, Cornelius, absolutely needed to know. And it's also what this multicultural church planter, Peter, still needed to hang on to. And what I'm referring to here is the story of Jesus Christ. Peter preaches the story of Jesus. It's what Cornelius needs in order to become a Christian, but it's also what Peter needs for the mission to remain Christian. And we only get a summary here, probably. It's probably not everything he said, but Luke is summarizing the content of the sermon, but his summary is instructive as to what's important. What does Peter preach? Well, he preaches first that Jesus governs them all. Verse 36, he is the Lord of all. Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, he is supreme over all things and all people. Now, don't miss this. This is not a small thing to say. He's in the house of a Gentile Roman soldier, a commander, and here he is saying, Caesar's pretending. Jesus is Lord. He is the sovereign one. He governs all Secondly, Peter says he redeems them. Jesus redeems us. He talks about Jesus' life, verse 37 and 38. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. He talks about Jesus' death, verse 39. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. He talks about the resurrection, verse 40. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He talks about Jesus' return, verse 42. He's the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. He talks about Jesus governing all, redeeming them. He's talking about Jesus' gift filling them, or at least that's what they experienced in verse 44. While Peter was still preaching, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And then finally, Jesus' name marks them. Verse 43, to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Verse 48, Peter commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, does any of that sound familiar to you? We recited the Apostles' Creed earlier in our worship, right? Isn't Peter's sermon outline here essentially the doctrines of the Apostles' Creed, the story 
of Jesus Christ. I have to wrap it up here, but the last thing that happens in this chapter, the very end of verse 48, Cornelius says, to, after all these extraordinary things happen, right, Cornelius says to Peter, I think you should stay here with us for a while. Now, don't pass over that too quickly, because remember, at the beginning, Peter's saying, I shouldn't even be here, I, you know, like uh, Gentiles, I don't go into the home, Jews don't eat with Gentiles, they don't come into the home of Gentiles. Here we are at the end of the story, and Cornelius is like, I think you should stay with us for a while. And really, the rest of the book of Acts is the followers of Jesus trying to figure out, how do you do that? How do, how do we stay together? How do we work it out? Acts 15 is about this. Galatians is about this. A large part of Ephesians and Romans is about this. And the last chapter of the book of Revelation tells us how this will happen fully and finally in the kingdom of God. Until the kingdom, this is going to be a struggle. How to deal with our differences, how to relate to our neighbors, but I want to invite us all into this struggle. And as we think about that, this passage helps us in, in two ways, or at least it, it challenges us in two different directions. And I'm going to state them very briefly here, and then we've got to be done. So I, I hope you'll chew on these things throughout the next week. Maybe talk about it with your friends. But the two, two things I want to state are this, that I think we learned from this story. Number one is some of us claim Christ but practice exclusion. That is, we want to follow Jesus, but we needlessly exclude from our fellowship people who are different from us. This can happen through insensitivity, might happen through a lack of humility, could happen through a lack of listening, could happen through elevating preferences such as they become barriers or obstacles. And so a question you might ask yourself this week, if you're thinking it through, if you're journaling, if you're just driving and need something to think about, what would be, if you got a vision like Peter had, what would be on your sheet that came down from heaven? Ask yourself, well, are there things that, that, that I'm doing or saying that somehow undermine the claim that Jesus reconciles all things in himself? Are there practices that I can part with or at least demote in order to make room for others. Some of us claim Christ, but practice exclusion. But the second thing, some of us practice inclusion, but diminish Christ. And if this is you, right, you find yourself cheering on the tearing down of barriers, you're weary of division, and those are tremendously great impulses. But you have to ask, am I committed to the uniqueness of Jesus Christ? Are we committed to announcing him as the place where all things are reconciled, where all things can be made new? Do not deceive yourself by thinking that a cultural ethos of inclusiveness is the same thing as a Christ-centered theology of inclusion. Not the same thing. And here's how you know the difference. Cornelius still needed Jesus. Peter didn't come. The angel of the Lord didn't come and say, you're great as you are. He still needed Jesus. He didn't need to adopt Peter's culture, but he did need to receive Peter's Lord. Now, how's all this going to work out for us? I don't know. <laughs> it's going to take a lot of prayer. It's going to take a lot of conversation. It's going to take a lot of struggle. I do take some comfort in the fact that Peter and Cornelius didn't know either. 
But what they did know is that they needed to stay together, and they did know that they needed to do that around the story of Jesus Christ, who, as Peter says, is the Lord of all. Let's pray together, and we're going to worship and come to the Lord's Supper here in a moment. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.